Hey guys, welcome back to uh, the third episode of Defending Arminianism. I'm here with my brother Dan. I'm your host Lucas Curcio. We're going to talk about prevenient grace. I'm I'm sure you're excited to talk about this as I am, Dan. Right? I am. Yes. This is core. This this is uh, this is one of the centerpieces of Arminian th- theology. That's for sure. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and I would say that this is like if you really want to understand this, and 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 I said this before, but I'll say it again. If you want to understand Arminian theology, prevenient grace is the key. So this is it. So you know, let's really dive into this. Um, I'll pull up the slides, and then we'll get right into the defending the doctrine of prevenient grace. Sure. So I'll start with just the recap slide. This is again from our original presentation that we went to, the summary of Arminianism. And there I covered resistible grace, but prevenient grace is a part of it. Frankly, um, uh, prevenient grace is probably the broader category. So, but I just did want to keep uh, consistency in, in the approach. So let's just go over a few of the big definitions Great. here. So the first is rejection is our choice. So God loves everybody, desires everyone come to him in repentance and faith. And he sent his son to die for mankind, which was our last episode, which I encourage everyone to check out um, so that everyone could be saved. Now, those whom God calls, he calls seriously and earnestly desires their conversion. So the responsibility for rejecting Christ is on the person who chooses to reject, and it's not due to God's withholding some type of grace that they needed. Now, prevenient grace is this idea is that grace comes prior to salvation and really prior to our repentance and faith. And it it's God's grace preceding the human will, and it is intended to prepare us uh, for the response to the preaching of the gospel in repentance and faith. It's supernatural rather than natural. And in scriptural language, prevenient grace includes illumination, calling, drawing, opening of the heart, opening the eyes and ears, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's witness. Now, there's a slightly different idea, which is sufficient grace, which fits underneath prevenient grace, especially in an Arminian model. And um, God provides grace or is ready to provide enough grace to everyone so that everyone can be saved, um, provide they uh, respond to his grace or at least don't resist his grace. So that's the idea of the sufficiency of grace, that everyone has enough grace so that they can be saved. Then, of course, is the resistibility of grace. God, uh, Some people can and do resist God's prevenient grace. And the operation of God's grace isn't a determining cause. Uh, it doesn't have a determined cause, determining effect model, but rather it operates operates via influence and response. And then last is the order of faith and regeneration. So faith comes before regeneration. Regeneration is new life in Christ. Um, now, not everyone defines regeneration as new life in Christ, but they should define it as regeneration. Um, new life in Christ. And so long as regeneration is defined as becoming a new creation in Christ, faith precedes regeneration. Because what happens is, first we believe, then we're united to Christ by faith, and then we're regenerated in Christ. But the regeneration is in Christ, and that's kind of key. So with a discussion like this, it's the, this is going to be primarily um, exegetical. It's good to go through these definitions mm-hmm. up front, but we'll be looking at a lot of different passages in tonight's discussion. And this is the type of discussion that is going to, um, I guess, kick the bees hive in a couple different directions. It's because uh, provisionists will disagree with a lot of the way Armenians explain provenient grace, and so will Calvinists. So, um, 
that uh, we'll we'll see that come up um, in different sections where we'll um, have differences and uh, with provisionist and also with Calvinist on these points. Yes, yeah, I like that sufficient grace because you know often you know the Calvinists will say is God's grace sufficient, and what they mean is determinism. So you don't need determinism to have sufficient grace. It's sufficient grace to use John Wesley's language is that God's grace is free for all and free in all. And, and that enables us, allows us by God's grace, by his working prior to our working. And it's only because of his working to repent and believe. And so that means whatsoever good is done in man or found in man, it's all 100% to God's grace, which is sufficient. So, you know, that's a, a beautiful term, you know, that we should, you should really stress and can't stress enough. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Yep. Okay. So now um, in terms of defining prevenient grace, for starters, what prevenient grace is not. So in a nutshell, prevenient grace is not saving grace. Saving grace is, so prevenient grace comes before salvation Saving grace comes during salvation and after salvation. So prevenient grace isn't justification. It's not adoption. It's not forgiveness. And it's not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those are separate things. Rather, prevenient grace is prior to salvation. Now, prevenient grace is not a natural ability. It's Mm -hmm. not the natural ability or the created ability. So God created us with free will. And it's that is not what we mean by prevenient grace, that God just created us with the free will to be able to believe. Um, rather, prevenient grace is a supernatural work. It's a current work of the Holy Spirit on the soul. And then prevenient grace is not regeneration. Prevenient grace is actually before regeneration. Yeah. So when you look at what prevenient grace is, it's God's grace, and it's the Holy Spirit working on the human soul. And it's the Holy Spirit working on our soul to prepare us to believe in God and um, and then after we're converted to obey God. Um, so. Oh, I just um, like to, you know, to mention that prevenient grace means that that the free will we talk about is only a freed will. So without God's grace, we would be, you know, we are dead because of Adam's original sin. Uh, you know, we talked about that. So God's grace, um, you know, the usual language of Brian Shelton mitigates the effects of the fall so that man's will is a freed will. So we don't believe in a natural will. You know, scriptures don't teach that. You know, the scriptures teach you can't in the flesh, you're unable to please God, to obey God. So how do you do it? Again, by God's grace. Yeah, that's right. Now, so in terms of the ability to believe the gospel or um, obey in a way that's pleasing to God, we certainly believe in a freed will rather than a free will. Now, when it comes to the choices between evil options and sinful things like, you know, th- those sorts of things, or even relatively good acts that aren't pre- pleasing to God, sure, there's free will in those areas, but not in the in the sense of just, you know, we can just use our, we're born innately able to just um, believe the gospel or, um, oh, act in a way that's pleasing to God, obey his commands in, his, in the way that's so pure that it, it pleases God. So, yeah, I agree. So, um, now the basic question is actually easy. Almost everyone, well, actually, almost all Christians believe in prevenient grace in the sense that there's some type of grace that comes before mm-hmm. salvation. And so, um, you know, Calvinists will hold to common grace with respect to the non-elect, and they'll hold to 
um, irresistible grace with respect to the elect, but they have grace that comes before conversion. Uh, they certainly hold to that. And provisionists hold to a type of provenient grace, which they would say, well, God's creating man with free will is a form of grace. Um, and they would say, well, the inspiration of the gospel is a form of grace. And, you know, the mission of Christ to die on the cross is a form of provenient grace. So pretty much everyone believes that there's grace prior to salvation. So now the question is going to come down to, um, you know, what is the nature of provenient grace? What's the scope of it? And what's the intention behind it? And with respect to Calvinism, especially, the intention question is so key. Because if you go to, let's say, like systematic theologies like Charles Hodge or something like that, what you're going to see is the same text that we look at for provenient grace they'll cite under common grace. But when you start to really read carefully what they're saying, there are these gifts that are given to the reprobate to make them more culpable, and in the end they're punished worse by having these gifts. So the, the God's intention in giving these gifts the, the, giving provenient grace on in a, in a Calvinistic model is actually for the harm of the people that are receiving them um, rather than for their good. So, yeah. um, you know, but, but the, but the point is everyone holds to some form. And so you'll see that it in, I mean, certainly every Protestant. Yeah. Because they'll uh, object and say, Oh, provenient grace isn't biblical, but then they believe that God gives his grace to all and they call it common grace. So another way to say provenient grace is common grace. And, you know, and there are, you know, like, like, like all Christians believe there are different forms of grace. There's soteriological grace and there's a common grace, but it's still grace prior that God universally gives and extends to all. Um, it's, it's funny that you have Acts 18.27, Dan. I, I was just reading that the other day because I'm going through the book of Acts now uh, in my devotions. And I was like, how, how much, cl how, how clear could this be? How could anybody deny provenient grace? They believed where he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So through is a tunnel. So through grace, by grace that they believed. So is provening grace biblical? I mean, the scriptures are, are you know, clear, you know, consistently all the time. It's by God's grace that they believed. And, and we even have an explicit, you know, words like, you know, you know, how much more clear could the Bible say it? Like, how could we deny provening grace? Like there it is, Acts 18, 27. Yeah, that's right. And see, I mean, you'll you'll find it in so Roman Catholics have a strong doctrine of prevenient grace. It's in their um, in the Council of Trent itself and other places. And you'll see it also in um, Eastern Orthodoxy. They have it as well. It's in the the Synod of Jerusalem, the sixteen seventy two Synod of Jerusalem. They have um, a statement on about uh, their belief in prevenient grace. So yeah, it's 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 across the. It's across the board yeah. from that standpoint. So um, what we'll get into is exactly how prevenient grace works, what it is, what it isn't. Now, in terms of the scope of it, I would say there are there is a small faction of Calvinists, I think, that probably would just deny prevenient grace and common grace. Um, and I want to say it's the... Um, the hypers? The, maybe. Uh, well, no, I, the, this, I think it's like the the continental reformers or the Dutch reformed church. Oh, really? Okay. Like yeah. So they, they don't like the term provenient. 
race. I think they they hold a similar views. They just use a different label for it. Um, but Preventing yes. grace is the old English term for those who really know their theology. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a it, it, prevenient just means coming before. Or going yeah, before. yeah. But you're right. It's a P R E pre. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay, so um, some some basic categories for prevenient grace. You got illumination, conviction, calling, and long suffering. So when it, you talk about illumination, the you know our need for it is established pretty clearly in Scripture, and especially in, in passages like First Corinthians twelve uh, two fourteen, where um, the natural man can't uh, understand the things coming from the Spirit, and then the means of illumination is uh, the truth or actually Christ himself. And then the scope is every man that's coming into the world. And you see that in John 1, 9. I wish I would I could spend more time on John 1. That's it's such an important That's passage. just the clearest verse to me because, you know, you know, just, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to take too long, but John 1, 9 the, is, the, the, you know, the light is Christ and it says he's shining on every man coming into the world. So, something externally is happening to man and it's that that's the light of Christ shining on who he says that every man coming into the world so by you know by that fact alone again we have prevenient grace right right and yeah so in John yeah right the whole scope of it but John 1 4 John 1 9 the whole thing it's interesting I would recommend um, that article by Nick it's so, it's so good um, and it's on the SEA website um, so Maybe we can put it in the show notes or something. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I hundred percent agree. This is a, this is a key passage, mm -hmm. and it certainly was for uh, uh, Wesley as well. And then, so now, in terms of the resistibility of illumination, one of the passages I look at is that Ezekiel um, twelve two, and it's not the only one where it says that they had eyes, but they did not see. Right, and it's talking about a specific refusal. But when it says they had eyes. Well, what's it talking about other than they had an ability to see and they just didn't use it, right? And so that talks about the resistibility. Another passage that um, is interesting that speaks to the resistibility of illumination is that the apostates that are talked about in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, whatever interpretation of the apostates you have, the, the one of the things that's listed in terms of um, the description of apostates is that they were illuminated. Yeah. And, and they are not saved. And that's a Christian because if you cross-reference that, I think it's Hebrews 10.32, he talks about, recall the former days in which you were illuminated, and the Greek word is fortizo. So it's the same Greek word. You know, you know that's where we get the word photon from. So he's talking about an illumination happening. Yes. Right, right. So that, so, okay, so whether you take the, their, they lost their salvation or whether you take they weren't saved to begin with. either way, what you mm -hmm. have is a type of prevenient grace yeah. that was resistible. Yeah. So another uh, type of prevenient grace is the conviction. So um, you have to want salvation in order to be saved. And you can see that in passages like Luke 5, 31 through 32, those that are whole don't need a doctor, but those that are sick. And the means for conviction is the law, but it's the Holy Spirit through the law. And we'll get into some detail on that. But um, a passage that, that dives into that a little bit is John 16, 9. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. We'll look at that whole passage in its context in a little bit. But um, a passage that shows the resistibility of that prevenient grace is Luke seven thirty. 
uh, where the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, not being baptized by the baptism of John. So um, again, you've got the uh, scope being the world and the resistibility of it. In terms of calling, you have the call, which is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. So everyone needs the gospel. The means is the gospel itself. And God is declaring to uh, men that all people everywhere should repent, according to Acts 17.3. So the scope is universal. And um, people resist. Um, God's calling, Proverbs 1.24, I called and you refused to listen. And then in Matthew 22.3, um, some were called, but they would not come. And then another form of prevenient grace is God's long-suffering. We need time and opportunity to repent. And God's providing us that time and opportunity. Um, is his, his intention is to lead us to repentance. You can see that in Revelation uh, 2, 2.21, where um, the woman is given a space to repent. And then in Romans um uh, 2.4, where Paul says that the goodness of God is leading us to repentance. Hmm. Um, go ahead. I want to mention, too, um, John 16.9 says he will convict the world of sin. So, prevenient grace is the working of the Holy Spirit. So, it's God working in you. And Christ talks about the conviction. You know, he will bring, he will convict the, the world of sin. Who? The Holy, you know, the Holy Spirit. So, prevenient grace is, is the working of God within man. And, and um, I have been thinking about this too, Dan. It's like, if, if we deny prevenient grace, then how would that fit fit within our theology of praying for revival, praying that God would convict people, that he would move on them? Like, like that would immediately, you know, just tear out that foundation. So, you know, revival now is just a work of a man, you know, praying that God would convict them and wake them up from, you know, you know from their sins. Like that just goes out, out you, know, you know, the window. But if we see conviction, conviction is a direct working of the Holy Spirit, and that's prior to them coming to faith, and that and that leads them to faith, and that right there, you know, like how like how else would you describe that as anything other than prevenient? You know, to me, it's just yeah. like, you know, that's it. You know, prevenient grace is the biblical case. Yeah, that's right. You know, so okay, so when you have uh, people like Charles Finney who would basically say, well, revival is just because we're using you know, the right type of um, mm -hmm. preaching and means and persuasion and just putting pressure on people to, yeah, I mean, and he just kind of leaves out the the Holy Spirit and the supernatural side. Now, I would say, you know, pr provisionists might, oh, actually, so um, let's say John Cassian um, would say, well, sometimes the Holy Spirit acts first, other times we act first. And it just depends, you know, mm. and, um, you know, so, so a, a view like that, well, maybe they would pray just because, well, God can act first. And if he wants to, he can, or that sort of thing. And so like a provisionist might say, well, yeah, we pray. So in Baptist churches, especially, um, at least going back, you know, I don't want to date myself, but, you know, like let's say 30 years ago, it was very common that we'd have altar calls yeah. and uh, during the preaching and, what the pastor would always just tell everybody is be praying that the Holy Spirit would be moving uh, uh, and mm -hmm. convicting people and things like that. And so I think just experientially, it would be hard for a provisionist to, to just toss that out. So they would say, well, the Holy Spirit can do that. He doesn't have to. He doesn't, he doesn't have, to, he's already inspired the gospel. So, you know, since he did that 2000 years ago, he doesn't have to do anything today, but he can, if he wants to, and it's helpful if he does. Um, so maybe they would, but um, 
but I, yeah, I I hear you, and I, I especially say if you look at some of the things that Finney had to say about um, revival, um, it yeah, it's not no bueno. Um, he didn't yeah. have a really a, a place for um, for that. But yeah, yeah. Okay, so what about provisionism? Okay, so what you have is two alternative competing ideas in terms of how provenient grace looks. So on the provisionist side, you have God creating us with free will, which is a gift from God, no question, and God inspiring the biblical writers with the gospel, um, you know, 2,000 years ago. Then on the Arminian side, you have the Holy Spirit working directly on the human soul and enabling a positive response to the preaching of the gospel. So what about provisionism? So let's look. Okay, so to set the stage for this, I want to jump ahead, not talk about provenient grace for a moment. So in our lives, we trust God in our everyday life. And we obey his commands. We try to do the right things. We try to glorify God. We try to act out of love for God. And that's just, we do that just because it's Friday afternoon, right? <laughs> it doesn't seem all that special. That's just what I do, you know, what I try to do every day. But it's radical. It's radically different than if you go back to our episode on total depravity. That's really weird. <laughs> how is it? How is that happening? The, mm -hmm. That's what I spent my Friday afternoon doing when um, the Bible talks about people being totally depraved, unable to please God, unable to obey God, uh, to obey God, unable to trust God. Well, we have a bunch of passages that tell us how it works. So in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God that works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Um, Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which he has given to us, which explains the difference between the enmity that we used to have. Um, Hebrews uh, 13, 20, now may the God of peace who brought again uh, from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom um, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, Galatians um, 5 attributes the, our good works to the fruit of the Spirit, and it says that we're being led by the Holy Spirit. Um, Romans 8 says something similar. If you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay. Now, Calvinist now, right? You know, so some people say, oh, that's very Calvinistic. But as I said before... The goal is not to be what's what's Calvinism teaching. Let's be the opposite. The goal is to be what's the Scripture teaching. So even if we sound or agree with a Calvinist, which we do in a lot of parts, as you can see here, it, you know, it's just coming down to you know what is the Scripture's teaching, and you can see that God says, "I'll put my Spirit within you. I'll cause you to to walk in my, you know, you know, ways and laws and whatnot." So it's you know, again, God, the Holy Spirit working you. It's it's Him, and you know what, too, Dan, it's like we we know this intuitively. Like Christians naturally thank God 
for everything. We thank God for clothing on our back, food on our table. You know, what are we doing? We're, we're attributing it to, to, his, to his working. I mean, is that, is that not provenient grace? I mean, of course it is. It absolutely is. Yeah. So in Calvinist, just hang tight, you know, I'll, I'll ruffle <laughs> your feathers soon enough. That's in the second half. Yeah. So we'll get, we'll get there. So, but uh, let's see. So I, I said that all that to say this. Provisionists, I think, are in a bit of a tight spot because they're not a monolithic group. They have differences amongst themselves. So if you asked Leighton Flowers, I don't think he'd have a big problem with this or the idea that no one can please God prior to faith. And then he just wants to say that faith is an exception. Yeah, we have the ability to believe, but we don't have the ability to obey prior to come into faith. So he would just acknowledge there's there's an inability to obey God in a way that pleases him prior to um, faith, justification, regeneration. And then after that, now there is a miraculous work directly in our hearts and on our souls that God is working in us to produce these good works. And so there's this radical asymmetry. Now, what's the philosophical challenge to Leighton's position at that point, if that's what he holds? It's his idea that ought implies can. He's got to make a massive exception. Hmm. However, not all provisionists will agree with Leighton on that point. And they would say, oh, no, ought implies can is all the way back. So let's get rid of, you know, sin nature kind of all together. And there's a, there's a more radical version that's out there that'll, that'll say, well, we don't really have a sin nature. Or if we do, it means maybe we'll eventually sin at some point, but it doesn't mean that we're going to sin in every single instant before we come to faith. And we can still obey God and please God before faith. And it's not a miracle after faith, you know, that sort of thing. But I think this these passages kind of, to me, nail that down, that there is a, a radical shift that, that happens, and it kind of breaks the philosophical model behind um, the uh, need and desire for denying total inability. And in essence, if someone were to grant total inability with respect to works, but then make an exception and say total inability works for faith, well, then all we have to do is just extend the argument just a little further and just say, okay, well, because there's this radical change with respect to works, doesn't that apply to faith? And that, that kind of sets the background versus a, um, a more extreme provisionist who would just say, no, there's never total a total inability with respect mm-hmm. to works either. So that's why I bring this up. Now, Um, In terms of taking it and just extending uh, the argument back further from an inability to to, um, with respect to works to an inability with respect to faith, I just wanted to show, okay, there is this continuity that you can see. So what what you have is the illumination or enlightening aspect. It's talked about in a post-faith sense in terms of passages like Ephesians 1, 17 through 20. So this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know um, what is the hope that he has called you, 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that's a very powerful statement about illumination that's being given to who? To Christians. After they've come to faith, he's praying for illumination. But there's illumination before. We already looked at that in terms of John 1, 9, but here's another passage. So 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In the case of the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, that we might proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, um, with ourselves as your servant for Christ's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I remind you of the context of 2 Corinthians 3 also, that Paul has just defended his apostleship by saying he doesn't use elegant words and language and fancy speech. He's spoken the gospel with plainness. And in the face of having preached the gospel, he's saying some people can't believe the gospel because they're veiled. And what mm -hmm. they need is divine illumination or enlightening. And it's the same illumination that is talked about after faith, which we know is in this miraculous working that God is doing in believers, why not believe that the same illumination is a miraculous working in unbelievers? Yeah. Especially when he couches it in terms of language of, uh, you know, when where in the Bible does it say God uh, said, let there be light? <laughs> That's in Genesis, Genesis, right? Like Genesis 1. <laughs> yeah. And now he's so, shining in, that, in our hearts, um, as you said. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So there's more. Uh, let's see. So, oh, and I apologize if this is small. So I'll, okay. I'll read it. So what about the gifts of repentance and faith? Okay. So for starters, even believers need the gifts of repentance and faith. We should be praying every day that God would give us more faith. And he will. Right. So in Luke 17, 5, the apostle said, Lord, increase our faith. In Psalm uh, 119, 32, uh, 36, uh, David said, turn my heart towards your statutes. In 1 Kings 8, 58, um, uh, I forgot who prayed, but somebody prayed uh, that he may, may incline our hearts to him. I apologize for forgetting the context there. Um, in Mark 9, 24, um, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 9, we're told, To another, the Holy Spirit gives faith by the same Spirit. And then in Romans 12, 3, we're told, For by grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, um, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then in Luke um, 22, 32, Christ tells Peter right before his temptation, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not or should not fail. So that's for believers. We're told that there's a gift of faith that we should be asking for. We should be seeking God's help to give us more faith. It's a gift from him. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is there a radical difference? In, we know in believers that um, these good works, these good things that people are doing are the result of God's 
miraculous grace working on the uh, human soul. So what about before conversion? In 2 uh, Timothy 2, uh, 25 through 26, we're told, um, correct his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In um, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, we're told, uh, Paul planted, Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Um, so there you have the, this is specifically with respect to the preaching of the gospel, right? Apollos and Paul preached the gospel, but it's God that gave the increase. Yeah. Well, if provisionism was right, all they would need is what Paul did. Right? Yeah, to right. the gospel. Yeah. It's the <laughs> preach, that's all that, that's all that's necessary. necessary. But Paul doesn't see it that way. Um, we talked about Acts 18.27 before um, and Philippians 1.29. Um, for it has been granted to you for, the, uh, for that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So that clearly says that believing is a gift of God. Um, in Acts 11.28, God has granted repentance that leads to life for the Gentiles. In 2 Peter 1.1, uh, 1, 1, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Um, so that it's basically saying God gave them faith. Mm -hmm. and, and and then in Matthew uh, 16, 27, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So the, the scriptures are just super clear that faith is a gift and it's a gift before faith and after faith. And in, in the after faith aspect, all of that is a supernatural gift that's working in the human heart. It's a, these daily miracles that we experience when God increases our faith. So why would we think that it's not a miracle when the person hasn't come to faith yet and hasn't been regenerated yet, hasn't been illuminated or indwelt with the Holy Spirit yet? Why would we think those aren't miracles when they're, they are miracles after you've come to and, faith. And we thank God for it. You know, again, naturally, you know, we thank God for our salvation and for other people's sal salvation. Why? Because it's a working of God. And to deny prevenient grace is, is it is to deny the, the, the working of God in salvation in the hearts and, and men and women to lead them to Christ. And, you know, this is why, like, you know, this really is a, an important doctrine to get right here. It is, yeah. So I could go off on a tangent. So when, um, um, in the debate I had with Warren McGrew, so he basically said, "Well, total depravity is like a pink elephant, and prevenient grace is like the blue aardvark that eats the pink elephant, or something like that." Mm -hmm. And I normally don't. I normally can stay, you know, stay calm. I didn't in that case because I basically said, "Hey, look, you don't." I I recognize Warren that you don't think that the Holy Spirit is like a, you know, blue aardvark. But you're calling the Holy Spirit a blue aardvark, and I have a problem with that. You can make fun of me all you want. Don't go there. I, yeah, anyways. Um, so. You can't deny it. It's, 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 it's too obvious. And to, you know, to deny this is to get into deep, deep trouble. And, that, you know, and it gets to a point where you do have to draw a line in the sand. And if somebody wants to deny the working of, of God, the Holy Spirit, in salvation... Well, then we have to, you know, as you said, you know, get a little bit serious and you're right to feel, feel that, that way as you felt, Dan. So, you know, like, like, like I'm right there with you when people who deny this, the evidence is clear in the scriptures. God is again, it's God, the Holy Spirit working in our lives and, and, and any Christian 
is going to intuitively know because God placed it in his heart that this is the working of God and they thank and give him praise for God. And heaven will for all of eternity. We will thank God for our, our salvation. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so the spirit of truth is the same, uh, same issue. So after we've come to faith, the Holy Spirit is still working in our hearts. And what is he doing? So in John 14, 26, Christ told the apostles, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So he's teaching us. And that's a miracle that's happening in our lives right now. And he's bringing us, he's bringing the apostles in the remembrance of all the things that I've said to you. Um, in First First uh, John 3, 24, uh, we're told, and we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. Our assurance of salvation is a, a gift, an immediate gift of the Holy Spirit to us. Um, and then in First John uh, 5, 6 through 11, um, but he, uh, but this is he who came by the water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. And there's, there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree. But if we receive this testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony that God has borne concerning the son. Whoever believes in the son has his testimony in himself. So we have an assurance, an unction of the Spirit from the Holy Spirit's directly working in us where he's testifying about who Jesus is. He's giving us the truth. He's bringing things into remembrance that Jesus taught. He is teaching us everything that we need to know. And that's all post-faith, and that's all the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit currently this isn't talking about what the holy spirit did 2000 years ago and in inspiring scripture it's what he's doing today that's what he did was doing friday afternoon now what about pre-faith so in john 14 16 through 17 we're told um and i will ask the father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will be uh will be in you. So that's by the Holy Spirit's presence. And then John 15, 26 says, but when the helper comes, I will send uh, I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. Mm-hmm. So are we the best witnesses there are about who Jesus Christ is? No. It's the Holy Spirit who is the best witness <laughs> the, the, about who Jesus is. And, okay, so then John 16, 12 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin... Why? Because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to my father. So he's convicting the world of sin just in terms of uh, teaching people that they're sinners and they're in need of a savior. But also because they don't believe in Christ, he's that great witness that bears witness about Christ. So he convicts us that we should believe in Christ. Yeah. And then. Um, and you will see me no more longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Um, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare all things to you that are to come. So anyway, so the, the, this is talking about the Holy Spirit's witness and its truth and the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, which, again, it, for believers, that witness of the Holy Spirit that's testifying to our soul that we are children of God and telling us to continue to believe in Jesus and that's leading us uh, in, in perseverance and giving us assurance of salvation, those are all miraculous works of the Holy Spirit done in the human heart. Why do we think that unbelievers who are unregenerate don't need a miracle for the Holy Spirit to do the same things? That's such a great point. That is such, yeah, right? If we need all this and we, we've been made new in Christ, how much more then does an unbeliever who's a, a child of the devil, a son of disobedient, right? The scriptures say, by nature, children of wrath. How much more do they do? You know, you know, they need them, or just as much as they need them. You know, even if it's not how much more, which is you know, you know, you know, uh, fine. You know, they need them just as much as we do. So, so that's an excellent point, Dan. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, now uh, provisions will bring up an objection, is or at least a question: Is provenient grace an ontological change of human nature? And the question is the question right back to him is what do you mean by an ontological change? I would say no. <laughs> yeah. What was it? What is it? What is an ontological change of human nature? So if you mean our essential humanity, no, it is not. But what is our essential humanity? So Adam before his fall was a human. And guess what? He was a human after his fall. And that so was his fall an ontological change of human nature? Christ is a human. Um, when we go to heaven, we'll be glorified. We won't be able to sin in heaven. Is that an ontological change of human nature? Well, we'll still be human. So the essentials of humanity don't change. So now if you take ontological change of human nature in the very lightest sense of, well, is it any change at all? Or so... Like if I put up one finger, now I put up two fingers. Okay, is that an ontological change of human nature? Well, I continue to exist at two different moments. That's ontology. There's a causal relation between the two of them. Those are two different states, and they're different change states, both in location with respect to causality, with respect to time. It, that's it. There's a lot of freight that goes along with something as simple as holding up two different fingers. So if that's what they mean by ontological change of human nature, okay, sure. Now. What does the what does the scriptural language say? Well, on the one hand, you have language like with Lydia. Um, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worship of worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay, so what you have is God opening. Lydia's heart. And then we've seen other passages where it's called the opening of eyes or opening of ears or something like that. That does sound a little bit like an ontological change, but again, it all depends. What do you mean by an ontological change? It's certainly not changing Lydia's basic humanity, her yeah. faculties. Like It's not a change in her mind, like her DNA, her reason, her will. It's certainly no physical change. Um, so what exactly is going on there? I don't know, but it does sound like God is doing something to her 
spiritual heart. Um, for now, a person, he's working in her again. So something externally is happening to her, just like John 1, 9, the light shining on man. So it's not ontological. It's something is happening to him externally. Something's coming to him. Something's happening. In this case, Lydia, God's opening up her heart. Right. So now, uh, Leighton would respond to this passage by saying, well, wasn't Lydia already a believer? And she certainly didn't believe in Jesus Christ because she hadn't heard about Jesus Christ yet. Now, when you look at the, this story in Acts 11, or about 10, or 10 and 11 about Cornelius, it's an interesting case. It's kind of a similar case to Lydia where he's a God-fearing man and um, uh, he's worshiping and praying, but he gets sent a message. Um, and in Acts 11, it said a message by which he can be saved. And so it doesn't seem like he's already saved. I would say the same would apply to Lydia, but, um, you know, but so the paradigm shift might be if, if Leighton believes, well, Lydia was already saved, then this isn't a case of prevenient grace because it's something that's happening after she's already saved. I think that would uh, create an interpretive difference um, here, but I don't think that's a, that's right because of the language in Acts 11 on Cornelius. So, um, and, and, and it shows, you know, regardless of that fact, actually, it's, it's still, you know, regardless, you know, you know, which interpretation, it doesn't matter because the need is here is it did Lydia need this? If God didn't do this, would she believe? I think, you know, it's impossible to, you know, be honest. If you're going to be honest, you can't say otherwise. Lydia needed this and God saw the need and he opened her heart so that she would pay attention to those things. So again, this is a working of God so that she can hear what was being spoken to her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that. The pay attention language is interesting also. So I was focused on the opening of the heart, but you're right. The pay attention language is is really, really key um, in terms of explaining what exactly the um, factor result yeah. of, of this opening of the heart was. So now the it's dangerous um, to mix metaphors. Right. So in including the metaphor of vision and blindness in scripture. But what you see in scripture is um, sometimes the metaphor is that there's a light problem and sometimes the, the metaphor is that there's a sight problem. So a light problem would be like what's talked about in 1 John 3, uh, 10 through 11. Whoever loves, loves his brother abides in light and in him there is no cause of stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So that sounds like it's external to the person. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, if I flip the light switch on and now my son can see, and so he doesn't uh, trip. Well, I didn't change him. I just changed the light switch. So that sounds external, but sometimes it's not talked about that way. Sometimes it's talked about a sight problem. So in Revelation 3.18, we're told, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve or medicine to anoint your eyes. Why? So that you may see. Now, that is a sight problem and it's a change to the person. So, you know, it's a mix of metaphor. So sometimes you... You know, you get different emphasis and spin, but you know, when you put the whole picture together, it's. And you're it's, buying it from Christ too, right? 
you're buying it from Christ, prevenient grace. It, it, it's a working of God. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so that, so the, the fixing of our blindness is, um, and this is be- both before and after faith, by the way, because there, the, you know, like I want to say it's in Luke 24 when, um, after the apostles, after the resurrection, the Christ still called the apostles blind. <laughs> um, so, so this is before, both before and after faith, both miraculous, but the, they are, um, yeah, but the, you have language that talks about light problems and language that talks about sight problems. Mm. So, so um, okay, now switching gears. Uh, I haven't offended everybody yet, so let's get to Calvinists. <laughs> so, not what off about, the hook. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> what about irresistible grace versus resistible grace? Okay. So, the resistance of provenience grace. Um, so God's spirit struggles with people. Okay, so that's uh, from Genesis three or Genesis six three. Now I recognize that there's also some some people take the interpretation. Of what this means is God's spirit within a person. That's like the breath of life that He put into them. So I, I recognize that. But a lot of translations just say, you know, then the Lord said, "My spirit will not struggle with human beings forever." Um, a passage is, that's more direct is Acts seven fifty one. Um, you stiff neck uh, people, uncircumcised in your hearts, your, your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. I think this passage is exactly where the Remonstrants got the language of resistible grace from the passage that says Our, that people yeah. resist the Holy Spirit. Where it literally says resist, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved his spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Um, Isaiah 5.4, which we're going to look at in more detail soon. Um, um, what more could have been done to my vineyard that has not been done in it? Um, and then Luke 19.41 uh, and 42, and now as he drew near, he, uh, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even especially... In this day, the things that made for your peace, where Christ is crying um, because of the um, people that were lost in the city. And then you see the same with the father um, in Psalm uh, 81, 13. Oh, that my people had listened to me um, and hearkened unto my ways. So you know, the language in scripture about the resistance of prevenient grace is, is clear, strong, and pervasive mm-hmm. and undeniable. So what do Calvinists do? They split grace into two pieces. There's, you know, a um, a type of grace that's resistible, and then there's a type of grace that isn't resistible. So they they split the category. So we'll have to address that. But uh, that's the, uh, but the the fact that some grace is resistible, I think, um, hopefully, has been established. So now let's let's try to hit the nail on the head. So what's going on? So what's the issue? Where where are we actually disagree? So we don't actually disagree that man is totally depraved. Armenians agree with Calvinists. People are totally depraved. They're in total need of grace. Um, We don't actually disagree. Does God grant prevenient grace? Many Calvinists agree with Arminians that God gives prevenient grace. They just call it common grace, or for the elect, they call it effectual grace, effectual calling. Um, So we agree that that, uh, with Calvinists that that God's call isn't for the reprobate, um, for the reprobate isn't external only. So it's not just the preacher up there preaching and the sound waves for the reprobate, even on a Calvinist model. They'll say that the Holy Spirit is is working in them, too. So um, they many Calvinists will say that God's call isn't just external for the reprobate. 
Now, the one that uh, usually throws people off, and we'll get to it, is does regeneration precede faith? You know, it is true that Calvinists and Armenians disagree on this issue, but it's not true that this issue is the key. So Calvinists will say regeneration comes first. Armenians will say faith comes first, then regeneration. Um, but we'll hopefully we'll discuss that later. But that's, although it's an important issue, it's not as central. Um, and then the issue isn't as uh, regeneration monergistic or synergistic. So Armenians don't say we regenerate ourselves. You know, I didn't give myself a new birth. No, yeah. no way. Yeah. yeah. So God regenerates. And then the, the issue also isn't, is faith a choice? Because Calvinists also will say faith is a choice. And so the issue isn't, are we responsible for our choices? Because Calvinists who are compatibilists will say, yeah, we're responsible for our choices. And the issue isn't faith, is faith a work? Because at least when you define faith and works the way Paul does when he's dividing faith and works and opposing the two of them, if you define it that way, everyone agrees that faith isn't a work because Paul says faith isn't a work. Yeah. When you contrast it with, with if, if, if he says this is a work, this is not, then what do you conclude? Faith isn't a work. Like it doesn't have right. to be more complicated than that. Right. And the issue isn't is faith a gift because Armenians agree with Calvinists that faith is a gift. And wh where we disagree is is it an irresistible gift, which I'm not sure what an irresistible gift is. Mm -hmm. But we disagree on that point. So the key issue is what? Can a man experiencing God's grace leading towards conversion choose not to believe? So Calvinists, Armenians say yes, they can choose not to believe. Calvinists say no. And if you reverse that and say it the other way, um, is grace a sufficient cause of faith? There, Armenians say no, and Calvinists say yes. So hopefully that um, narrows and, and, down. And you know what, too, Dan? You know, the entire doctrine of justification by faith alone is built upon the premise that the Bible says we're justified by faith, not by works. So for Calvinists to say faith is a work is to deny the main principle of justification by, by faith alone. Like, you know, there's no, you know, like, you know, again, like how much clearer can it be? Here's works. You're not justified by this. You're justified by this, which is what faith, and that's how we get justification by faith alone. Yeah, Paul. Could, Paul's explicit. I mean, I, I'm thinking of like uh, Romans four sixteen, where he says that it's um, by faith, so that it might be by grace, and um, Romans eleven, where you know it's by uh, where Romans eleven six, I think, where he opposes faith and works in the strongest possible mm. terms. Yeah. So yeah, 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 hundred percent. Okay, so now the sufficiency of grace. I think Isaiah 5, 4, or actually the whole passage is really a tough one for Calvinists. So I'll, I'll read this. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in the midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, didn't it, did it bring forth wild grapes? So in the background, so God uh, calls on the Israelites to judge themselves. 
to condemn themselves for what? Not producing good grapes, despite all the blessings God's given. Um, but if God, you know, if whatever he provided was insufficient, was, wasn't enough to enable them to produce good grapes, they wouldn't be in a position to condemn themselves. How can they blame themselves if God didn't give them what they needed to be able to produce good grapes? And if it, that, if it was only possible by God's gift that they produce good grapes and God just didn't give it, and so they were unable to produce them, how is it they're going to judge themselves, right? Yeah. And we have God's expectation that they would produce good grapes. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't know the future. God does know the future, but in some sense, um, that's based on the future, the outcome, rather than... Um, that was his intention. His intention was to bring forth good grapes. Is, is exactly. what communicating. That's, exa that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So... Um, Right. So, and then God just straightforwardly asked what more he could have done, which mm -hmm. wouldn't make, make sense if he didn't provide them sufficient yeah. gra uh, grace to provide to produce good grapes. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Um, so another passage on prevenient grace. Um, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Uh, this is Titus 2, 11 through 14. So um, God's grace is a bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of the great uh, God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So when you, the word appeared is interesting there because it makes it sound like um, it either wasn't there before or it was maybe there but not or hidden before or something like that. So to me, that what that implies is that he's talking about Christ's mission, the the incarnation itself, and the idea is is it's it's Christ's um, illumination or resplendence that people can see um, in his bringing of salvation. So, and what does this grace do? It trains us, and uh, you know, I think it's it's interesting in the Greek, it, you know, the 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 Star Wars term Padawan or whatever. Like, I think the word is like actually kind of similar. <laughs> Like I'm a sure Padawan? Some, yeah, 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 I think it is. But so it's, there's some relation between the Greek word. But anyway. May the grace idea. be with you is what we should say then. <laughs> yeah, may the grace. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yes. Yeah. So God is, but what does this grace do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's basically talking about repentance, right? So it, God's grace is bringing us to repentance is what he's, what he's ultimately talking about. Yeah, so it's bringing salvation. So it's not post salvation. It it so what what brought salvation? What's the vehicle? Grace. So what does that mean? What what came before here? Was it salvation or was it grace? Grace. Okay, so what do we call that? Prevenient. We call it prior grace. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, Job. Okay. Now, caveat on Job. Job is a very interesting book. I love the book of Job. But you read the book of Job and about 40 chapters in, if you find out, well, some people didn't speak accurately. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Then you got to go back and reread it again and then check it really carefully. But so in one of the speeches of one of Job's friends, uh, we're told this. 
But God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber in their beds, he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. And then he goes on on other things that God does for people. And then he says, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. So what's the purpose in God's um, revealing himself to people and warning people and um, and working on people directly, not just through a human preacher, not just the inspiration of scripture, but directly. Why is God doing that? Um, to bring them back from their soul from the pit so that they'll be lighted with the light of life. So um, it is what it is. It's a, it, it's um, a tougher passage to deal with because of the complexities of um, Job, the book of Job itself. But um, I think he, he's just relating the facts of his experience. So mm -hmm. sorry, uh, the facts of his experience. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. I love the next verse coming up. I saw on the screen, was it John 12, 32, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, so this is so great. And, you know, just to, um, you know, talk about the audience. So prevenient grace um, comes through the cross of Christ. Would you agree with that, Dan? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. It's, so it's it, the foundation. So in Wesleyan theology too, um, the cross, the, the atonement is what provides God's grace. And Christ says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, will draw all men to myself. So this is universal extension of Christ's grace going out to to all men, drawing them them. And it's by, it's through his 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 atonement, his 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 death on on the cross for all men. So it's Christocentric. Dan, um real quick, how would you how would you um reconcile this verse with John 6 44? Because people usually bring that up to up, you know, um you know, is this the same drawing in that verse? So, you know, if you just want to, you know, not to go too off slides but how how would you reconcile john 6 44 with john 12 32 so i think this very similar i mean the the difference would be that there it's talking about the father's drawing here it's talking about the son drawing but mm -hmm. i mean we're all trinitarian here so you know yeah. it, it, i don't i don't put too big of a difference just between just between that so i'd say that the, i think we're talking about this roughly the same idea um in John 6, 44, we're told that um, no man can come to me unless the Father sends me, draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. And then 45, it's written in the prophets, they will all be taught of God. Everyone that hears and learns from the Father comes to me. So the all is talking about Israel and all of the Israelites being taught. And so um, Christ is fulfilling the prophecy uh, from Isaiah 54. Um, but it's right there on the spot where in his audience, there are members of Israel, some of which are re believing in him and some of which are rejecting. And so it seems like this activity of being taught of God is, is broader than just all of the elect. And it applies to his immediate context where people are being taught, but not everyone is hearing and learning of the father. Now, this is going to really ruffle feathers with Calvinists, but learning is synergistic. You can, you know, I, I, I homeschool, homeschool uh, or at least we do Liberty online anyways, but um, you know, I teach my son 
And if he's not paying attention, he <laughs> goes in one ear out the other, right? So he, it takes it takes both of us sometimes. And if he's not if he's not focused, if he's not paying attention, it just doesn't work. So yeah, learning is is a synergistic process. So um, yeah, so so I think that's the way that works. Now, some people will say, well, drawing is used in the sense of physical dragging. And it is. So like somebody drew his sword or, you know, you can draw a boulder or you draw in fishnets or something like that. And those are dragging. And this is in a, a um, metaphorical sense rather than a, f a physical or literal sense of drawing. So, you know, you can draw people to the concert by advertising and stuff like that. Right. So it's, it's that's a better sense for it. But if you want to say that every time the word draw is used, it's use of a change of location. I think that's actually probably right. Um, but you can see that the means of drawing don't have to be some type of irresistible force. You can see that from Solomon, Song of Solomon yeah. uh, 1.4, draw, uh, draw me after you, uh, let us run. The king has brought me into his bed, into his chamber. So that's talking about- regeneration too, because the Calvinists will interpret that as regeneration. That's ridiculous. It's not regeneration. It doesn't say that. Jesus isn't saying you have to be regenerated to believe. No, you know, it's it's nowhere in the text. And you look up the definition too. So, you know, no. you know this is an important distinction. Armenians don't interpret draw as regeneration. Calvinists do. And again, that that's an absurdity. It's not in the text. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and right. And so that and then another means of is, you know, let let them uh I led them or drew them with cords of kindness from Hosea 11, four. Mm. Um, and with bands of love, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on the jaw. So anyways, um, now what's interesting is the resistibility. Um, Nehemiah 9.30. And I wouldn't say this passage isn't without its complications, but it's a very fascinating one. So I'll, I'll read it in just the ESV translation of the Hebrew text. You were patient with them for many years and your spirit warned them through your prophets but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. Now, you could easily cite this under the list of passages where people were resisting the Spirit. But here's what's interesting. If you look at this passage in the Septuagint and look at that first phrase, you were patient with them for many years, you'll find a very interesting word, halkuo. It's the same Greek word that John uses in 644 and John 1232. So they're being halkuod, and yet they end up not safe or resisting. So I think that shows that, you know, the resistibility of God's grace. Now, if you want to say, if, if a Calvinist wants to insist, well, drawing has a change of location, you know, as Arminians, we grant that, at least in, to some extent, that by the cross, everyone is impacted somehow. And some some positive direction, no one can be just purely apathetic to it but that doesn't mean they come all the way to faith in christ to trusting in christ alone for their salvation even if they move even if they're enabled and they move from being disabled to enabled because of the cross or even if they're attracted to the cross a little ways it doesn't mean that everyone th this isn't universalism um it doesn't mean that everyone ends up safe mm -hmm. yes okay now, um, another thought is this idea of tri of trials. Um, and I've looked th through this. There's probably about 25 different passages that I've seen uh, talking about God trying and testing us. 
And so one of them that stood out to me was Exodus 16, 4. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people will go out and gather a certain quota every day that I might test them. Why? Whether they will walk in my laws or not. Right? That's part of the testing is this twofold ability, the ability to walk in God's laws or not. Now, um, Job extends this out, and again, Job has its complication, to, that we're being tested at every moment. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? So that's saying that this testing is broad and widespread. Now, why am I bringing this up? So Ar Armenians are not provisionists. We hold to total depravity. Now, some... Sometimes um, Calvinists will criticize Armenians and say, what you hold to is virtual total depravity because no one is actually totally depraved because they have, yeah. they have prevenient grace. And that's not right either. Total depravity is real. Certainly in the case of hardening, people are left in a totally depraved state, but maybe in other times too. So that's true. But um, so I have no problem with that. But what we have is this other genre in scripture where sometimes God is testing us, trying us, whether we will obey him or not. And in those cases, I think it's very safe to assume that we have prevenient grace, that the graces that we've already talked about are being displayed and that God is testing us and trying us. And in those cases, we're unable to obey him or not, even if. It's not true of every moment of human life from conception to death that they have God's prevenient grace to obey or not. Um, let's say, for example, maybe Pharaoh didn't have the ability to obey at certain moments. Um, but at the times when Pharaoh was tested, he did have that grace. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, now, uh, let's get into the purpose of the law and so I'll make this quick. So Luke uh, 5.32 says, I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.12 says, um, those who, do, uh, who have no need of a physician, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew 11.28 says, come to me, all you who labor and are heaven laden, and I'll give you rest. Galatians 3.24 says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Okay, so all these passages are teaching us one thing, that people are prepared by the law to realize that they're sinners, that they're stuck in their sins, that they can't save themselves, and that they need a Savior. And so in that sense, the law prepares us for Jesus Christ, and they are ready to be called by the gospel. Now, okay, so going from a historical theology standpoint, people don't realize that it wasn't when Arminius reached Romans 9 that the Armenian controversy started because he was preaching through the book of Romans at um, Peterskirk and in Amsterdam. It was when he reached Romans 7. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's when the controversy kicked off. But um, look at Romans 8.15, which says, and you do not receive the spirit of slavery leading again to fear but you receive the spirit of adoption by which we call Abba Father. And um, look at that little word again. So they're talking about two different works of the spirit. One is leading 
to slavery and fear, and the other to adoption. And so that's part of Arminius's framework. But it's kind of like the song, you know, Amazing Grace, "Twas Grace that taught yeah. my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve. What is that? Grace teaching our hearts to fear, if not prevenient grace. And it's the law preparing us for grace. And what does this tell us about the scope of prevenient grace? Who isn't, at some point in their life, under the law? Even if someone's never heard, they have their conscience. The law is written on their heart that way. So everyone is under the law. So that means that the scope of reverenient grace can be and is, you know, universal. But so Romans 7 itself, and I don't mean to decide the controversy. It's a tough one. The, one of the better explanations that agrees with Arminius is um, Douglas Moose. So the question is, is Romans 7 pre or post conversion? So I put the phrases that indicate that this is um, pre conversion in red and post conversion in blue. So I'll just read through this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So sold under, this, uh, under sin sounds pre conversion because um, the, uh, Christ sets us free from the law as we see in, in Romans 6. For I do not understand my own actions. For what I, I do not do, so he's, there's an not doing the right thing, what I want. But what I want sounds pretty good because Paul at least wanted the right things. But I do the very things I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good and that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. How can a Christian say nothing good dwells in me when the Holy Spirit dwells in him? That is in my flesh. So I guess at least he specified there. Yeah. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do uh, do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells with me. So that phrase sounds more like Paul after he saved. And then, for I find it to be a law that when I do, uh, for what I want to do is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's probably the strongest argument that people can make that this is post-conversion. Uh, but then the strongest argument on the other side is coming up. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin. Um, that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death. That language is strongly contrasted to what we see book bookended in Romans 6. Paul is talking about the freedom that we have in Christ and that we're a new creation in Christ. And in Romans 8, he talks about us being led by the Spirit and um, that th th it's a radical game changer. So that's why um, I think Arminius took that view. I do recommend Douglas Moo's commentary. He agrees, and but I'm not going to say that that's that's an easy issue to settle. Yeah, it's a hard um, Yeah, it is. It is a it is a tough one, um, but it's um, for for a minute. It was a pretty key text because he basically was saying that um, Paul is projecting back. You know his his conversion experience. He's projecting himself. So the question comes up also: Well, why is Paul using current language like "I, I am"? Doesn't that mean it, it's obviously pre-conversion? Well, it sounds like it would, but just two verses early in the chapter, Paul is personifying Israel when he talks about, um, you know, 
he was alive without the law once, but when the law came, sin revived and he died. Well, you know, that, that he, I, Paul is pretty, Paul is personifying Israel at that point. So the, the I language isn't necessarily Paul speaking as a private individual. So, okay. Um, moving along. So now uh, responding to some common arguments that Calvinists give. Okay, Romans 8, the call. Um, so we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so hopefully, God willing, we'll do a future episode on um, election and predestination. So I won't touch on that aspect. But the argument, uh, yes, next one. Yes, yes, that's yeah. right. So, so, but here I want to just focus on the argument that, okay, well, you have one group of people that's glorified, how come that's the same group of people that are called in this passage? Doesn't that imply that the call is effectual? And that's the Calvinist argument that um, we need to answer. Now, um, a, a more a recent proposal put forward by William Klein, which seems pretty promising is um, that the word Colin or called uh, should be understood as named uh, um, rather than summoned. And he makes a really strong case for this. So he's got an article, Paul's use with Cullen and uh, a proposal. You can also see this used in uh, Brian, Dr. Brian Bassiano's work and his Romans 9 commentary. Now, if he's right, then that um, basically puts this whole passage as uh, post-faith um, and removes the idea of effectual calling because mm -hmm. it's not about a call, a summons to salvation. But... Um, that's that's a more recent proposal. Now, classic Armenians just have a different explanation, or at least usually have a different explanation. And um, that is just essentially the reason why the group is the same, it, why this group ends up glorified, isn't because of the effectual causal relationship between the call and the response of faith, but rather based on the certainty of God's foreknowledge. And that's why it's, it's not a changed group. So, you know, it's, it's not just the call it, in general, because many are called, but few are chosen, but rather it's those that are called that are foreknown also um, yeah. it, when he talks about them. Now, um, another verse on called is um, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Um, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Okay, so what does the called mean here? And why is basically Paul referring to believers as the called? Well, you know, it's a synecdic key. It's a part for the whole, I think is probably the best way to explain it. But to give some background, um, well, I, I'll just say that. So um, the group is dep depicted as those that are called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in, in verse 18, Paul says, uh, to those who are being saved, it is the gospel is the power of God. In verse 21, he says the believers are saved through preaching. Now, um, Paul focuses on what the gospel means to those who have already positively responded. Right. So the 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 Greeks and the the Jews had heard it but rejected. The the Christians had heard it and believed it. But he's he's taking a, a retrospective look. I guess is probably the best way to say it. Hmm. Um, so, 
um, why is it that we see um, the preaching of the gospel as um, God's wisdom when they rejected it and saw it as foolishness or see it as foolishness? And so if you look at the usage of the word galetos, it can mean assembled or convocation. You can see that language in the Septuagint in Exodus um, 12, 16, or Leviticus 23, 2, when it's talking about a religious gathering, a religious assembly for ceremonies in Old Testament times. And the church, <clears throat> the word for church is an ecclesia, which mm. is, you can you can just hear the similarity in the, in the word. It yeah. has the same kind of root. And so the idea is that those that are called, it's a reference of those that are uh, the group of people who are gathered to Christ as his church. They're his covenant people, and they're called and assembled. They responded to the call of the gospel. And one of the church fathers said something very similar. So one of the earliest church fathers, actually Clement of Alexandria, said this in Stromata, Book 1, Chapter 18. He was commenting on this passage, and he says, All... Um, a broader group than just a few, just the elect, having been therefore called, those who will, were willing to obey have been named called. So in other words, it, it is, it's just as um, basically it's the assembled Christ assembled church, the assembled group of believers. That's why um, only yeah. believers are, are the called in this kind of special sense. So, um, Okay, another Calvinist argument to touch on, the difference maker. And so I will confess that I find this to be one of the stronger arguments that Calvinists have. Now, I don't think it's convincing. I think it's a tough one. But I will admit that I, I think that this is, a, this is a worth consideration worth praying over and thinking about. So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Now, when you look at it in context, I think you get a different picture than the way Calvinists use it. Because the way Calvinists will use it, it'd be like, why did you believe and that person over there didn't believe? Are you better than them? Right? That's the usual argument that we hear. Now, I don't think that's what, what Paul is up to, at least in the context. What's happening is he's talking about like temporal advantages that rival teachers have so that, you know, people are saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos and I'm better than you. I was baptized by this guy and you're baptized by that guy. Huh? You know, look, you know, so I, I think that's the context and that's what he means. But if Calvinists want to persist and say, well, you know, um, there's, this is a general principle that applies to that context, but it applies to every context. And it's so they, they want to universalize it. I'm not so sure that Paul would do that. But let's say for the sake of discussion, let's say he does. All right. So why is it that one person is different than another? So for starters, the easiest answer I can give is that faith it doesn't save. God saves yeah. people that believe. And, and if he and doesn't, there's not a difference too, you know, is what I would say, you know, what makes you different than somebody else? Well, we're not, we're, you know, we're both sinners. We're both, you know, we both need Jesus. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, even if someone wanted to pin to, well, but you regenerate. And, but the answer there is, well, I didn't regenerate myself. Yeah. <laughs> I just, 
I just God, didn't. God saved me. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. So, you know, God is the difference maker. So, but now I, but I'd also say, you know, there's a, you know, to Kokwe or U2 aspect of this argument too, because so if Calvinists want to say, well, I'm not talking about regeneration. I'm talking about the fact that you're a believer to begin with because they're an unbeliever and you're a believer. Well, so two responses there, or several responses there. Who made them an unbeliever? Right? So, I mean, it kind of, that's a two-way street because don't you want to give, don't you want to put the responsibility on them for unbelief? Mm-hmm. And then the other side of that is, okay, but what about those that believe? Well, Calvinists believe that faith is a choice. And it's something that we do. They don't say that God believes for you. And they believe that we're responsible for what we do. So if faith is something we do, and we're responsible for what we do, then we're responsible for our faith under Calvinism, under under your under Calvinist's own logic. So, you know, I think what's happening there, and this is this is tricky philosophically, but what's what's happening is they're appealing to something that's very intuitive, but they're borrowing from an Arminian worldview. So what if we said, well, if a Calvinist said, ah, but I believe in irresistible grace, God causally determines the believer to believe. Okay. Well, then what? That means we should give God 100% of the credit and then the man. Really? Because according to co- compatibilism, it doesn't matter that what you're doing is, causal, is determined. The responsibility still lies on the person. Right? Because that's what compatibilism says. You're, you're responsible for what you do. Even if what you do is determined, you're still responsible for it. That's the very fundamental basis. It's the Arminians that say, if determinism is true, how could there be any responsibility? So the Calvinist is kind of borrowing from the Arminian worldview and throwing it into this argument. Yeah, it's trying to make you feel bad, too. Look, I remember um, at the Apologia debate that I did, um, he asked me what makes, you know, I, I forget the exact terms, but like, why are you in heaven and somebody else isn't? And I said, well, it's, well, it's because what the Bible says somebody believes and somebody doesn't. And he made out like that was a bad thing. And if you just stop and think about it, wait a minute, the Bible says that if you believe you go to heaven, if you don't, you go to hell. And if somebody wants to knock me for that and say that, oh, you're making this a work, trying to make you feel bad about it, then praise God, I'll, I'll affirm that all day long. I, you know, somebody is saved by faith and somebody is damned by unbelief. And you can go ahead and mock me, but this is just, you know, basic soteriology 101. Mm, that's so frustrating. Yeah, I, I man. Yeah. Um, I know. I know. It, it, you know, about. it was unbelievable for me to, you know, like afterwards I was thinking, wait a minute. He, you know, he was seriously trying to make me feel bad for, for something like that. Like I'm being the bad guy for, for that. It was, it's, it's, you know, it's just Calvinism for you sometimes. Yeah, that's right. It, so now, one further point, not all Arminians hold to this, but Arminius himself did. So, um, you know, faith is a gift of God. I mean, I think all Arminians hold to that. But then, um, and it's a, it happens because 
Why? Because people don't resist grace. And it goes back to that word drawing that we saw before, where it's God that's drawing. He's moving us towards Christ. And so the motion isn't due to us, It's, but we can put the brakes on and stop it. So our choice is to resist or not, but our choice isn't um, what causes us to believe. So now, not all, all Arminians. Now, Arminius himself held to this, and he used the example of two wrestlers. And he said, well, if one wrestler is using all his strength to hold himself to the ground, then he can stop the other wrestler from lifting him up. But if he just relaxes, then the other wrestle, wrestler can lift him up. That was his example. I think there's an, um, Kenneth Keithley came up with an ambulance model. Basically, the idea is, well, you know, if you're terribly injured in an accident, you could stop the ambulance driver. You could like dive yeah. out the back of the ambulance, but you can't just take yourself to the hospital because your legs are broken or whatever the case might be. So anyways, um, okay. Um, now, and this will be the, the last section. I'll go through it quickly for just for the sake cool. of time. Is regeneration before or after faith? Okay. So, so for starters, you have to define regeneration. So what is regeneration? So, um, what we see is several passages that have an instrumental means of regeneration. In 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 15, we're told um, Paul has brought us forth through the gospel. So the gospel is the instrument of, of begetting. And then in uh, 1 Peter 1.23, we're told uh, we're born again, not with corruptible seed, but with incorruptible seed through the word of God. So the new birth is through the gospel. And you see the same uh, in James uh, 1.18. He brought us forth by the word of truth. So you have this instrumental mean of the gospel. And so in that sense, what we're seeing is that it's a result of the preaching of the gospel, that regeneration happens. Then you have passages that talk about um, the washing of regeneration. By the way, the word regeneration only appears in scripture two times, and one of them isn't soteriological. So yep. this is the only passage that uses it in a soteriological sense, but what it says in the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified, past tense, by his grace, we should uh, become heirs to the hope of eternal life. So there he's talking about a cleansing of sin and um, justification. So that's clearly post-faith. And if this is a reference to baptism, which it very well could be, you know, and well, I guess it depends, but certainly for an adult, uh, maybe people have a different uh, view for infants, although I don't. But it's certainly for a, an adult, they're going to believe first before they're baptized. So that would put, you know, so if baptism is a symbol for regeneration, that would put at least a symbol for regeneration after faith. So in any case, um, the so those are the... Uh, the arguments, I suppose. Now, um, some will say, some Calvinists will say, well, what about John 3? So Christ said in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what you notice is we know what's going on, but Nicodemus doesn't. Now, the reason why we know it's up is because in John 1, God, uh, John has already revealed to us that uh, how people are born again, it's when they receive Christ. That's when they become a part of the uh, family of God. So we already know, but but Nicodemus doesn't know. So Nicodemus is confused. He says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus answered, um, 
Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's talking about en entry into heaven. Um, so that's what that means. It doesn't mean that faith comes before re regeneration. Some people will say, well, see means faith and kingdom of God isn't heaven or isn't the millennial kingdom. It's the gospel itself. No, it's not. It, the kingdom of heaven, you can just, just do a word search on kingdom of heaven. You'll see what he's talking about. But he's clearly talking about entry into en entry into heaven. So, okay. Um, now, some arguments that faith is before regeneration. So, by grace, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, given the right to become the children of God, given everlasting life, and we shall not come into judgment, but have passed from death unto life. Our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, but recipients of the Spirit, and transformed into the Lord's image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. But all those wonderful, gracious gifts, gifts that were given, when do they happen? Only after you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which in, in whom, after, after having believed, in whom as many as received Christ and believed in his name, to those who hear Christ's words and believe in him who sent them in Christ and through union with Christ by hearing of by the hearing of faith and to him who with unfailed faith beholds in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So before we get those blessings, the blessings of regeneration, um, we believe. And so that's why we believe that faith is uh, before regeneration. Yeah, very consistent. Yeah. So now what about dead in sins? Does dead in sins mean that we have an inability to believe and so that we have to be regenerated first? Or is dead simply just, you know, kind of this, we're under a sentence of death. We're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to justify ourselves. We're unable to regenerate ourselves. So which is it? Does this, does death necessarily include an inability to believe that means that we have to be regenerated first? And the answer there is, um, doesn't. So in Colossians 2, 11 through 14, we're told in him, that's in Christ Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The circumcision made without hands is regeneration, but that happens when in Christ, when somebody is united to Christ, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, again, putting the body of flesh off, that is regeneration. Having been buried with him in baptism, so were they baptized before faith or after faith in which you were also raised up with him through what faith mm -hmm. and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. That's the previous unregenerate state. God made alive together with Christ having forgiven all your trespasses Who's forgiven except believers, right? It, yeah. it specifically says it's through faith. It says it's in union with Christ. You see the same in, um, the same language in uh, Ephesians 5, even after you were dead in your trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. It's in union with Christ that mm -hmm. received this blessing. So, so, um, so much for that. Okay. And that's, uh, that's it. That's what I had for slides. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dan, for that. We uh, we will be on episode three and our next one that will be concluding this series. Uh, what is it? Conditional election. We uh, we will be going over. So I'm looking forward, uh, you know, to that one, Dan. And we'll be talking about predestination. You know, all all the good stuff. So maybe people will really tune in tune in for that one uh, and everything. But thank you for doing this again, Dan, and, and leading us. You know, you've been great so far.
Oh, it's been a real blessing. I, lo I love this uh, chance to chat with you and to dig into God's word and um, just uh, thank you for it. God be thank with you. you. And, and to the viewers, please uh, like and share, you know, that helps you, uh, the algorithm. We're on Apple and Spotify as well. And tune in for next episode. If you haven't watched the other ones, go go ahead, you know, and watch the other ones. Until next time, take care and God bless.